0: So in the questions and answers so far um, for Silke's talk and for Tomas's, one of the things that's come up, which I think is very interesting, is how we balance moving towards positive futures with avoiding the futures that we want to avoid. And it's about avoiding it. We can't just ignore them, as this gentleman's pointed out, because if we ignore them, we leave ourselves open to problems. And that's what I'm going to talk about today. Is there a clicker? No. I'm sorry. How many of you know who this is? We've got one person. That's great. (laughs) That's more than I was expecting. (laughs) Stanislav Petrov saved the world. He was on duty for the Soviet Union in a particularly tense period of um, U.S.-Soviet relations in 1983 when the Soviet radar system picked up an incoming U.S. missile launch, then a second, then a third, a fourth, and a fifth. He kept calm, didn't panic, and radioed in a false alarm, based purely on his conviction that the US wouldn't start a global war with just five missiles. It was a a glitch, and he was congratulated. Then he was interrogated for a long time, and reprimanded, and left the army in disgrace three months later. How about these guys? The Cuban Missile Crisis is well known, but we've had many other near brushes with nuclear war because of faulty computer chips, weather rockets, and even these guys, flocks of geese. <laughs> We've avoided nuclear war because of luck and because of invisible heroes like Petro. But we can't afford to keep relying on luck all the way along. My name's Shona Hagerty. I help run research programs, interdisciplinary research programs, across Oxford and Cambridge, looking at the impacts of emerging and future technologies. And one of the themes that we look at is large-scale risk, existential risk. That is, risk that threatens to wipe out humanity or permanently and drastically damage our future prospects. Now, these kind of risks have been with us from nature all along. Meteor impacts or supervolcanoes. But those are rare events. 100 million years apart for um, meteor impacts, 100,000 years apart for supervolcanoes we think that humanity has more pressing concerns. On July 16th, 1945, the history of the world changed utterly and irrevocably. For the first time in the 45 million centuries of the Earth's history, the decisions or the mistakes of one species that been around for a blink of an eye could determine the future. This man, James Martin helped found our programs in Oxford, he gave 150 million pounds to Oxford to work on 21st century challenges because he believed that humanity is now at a crossroads. Advances in technology give us a far greater level of power than ever before over the world's resources. And these advances allow us to make the world a much better place than it has been before for everyone, um, the whole world's population, not just the first world. But the same level of power means that there is a level of risk involved that is completely new, unprecedented, and that we've had very little time to adapt to and to come up with new ways of combating. And it's something that we need to understand better. The fate of countless generations ahead of us may depend on how we handle this period of history, these next 50, 100 years, when this level of power is completely new to us. So what kind of technologies are we talking about? Well, we've talked about nuclear weapons. Another area is engineered biology, systems biology, um, or synthetic biology, I should say, and other biotechnologies. In particular, the kind of technology that makes it a little bit too easy for small groups to engineer a new pandemic that could threaten the world's population. Another area is artificial intelligence. Perhaps not the way Hollywood paints it, but we've been talking to experts in this field and they think that we should be a lot more careful than we currently are about how we develop this technology. Other areas of concern geoengineering. This is deliberate interventions by humans to mod- uh, modify the Earth's climate. Uh, also, molecular manufacturing, as yet theoretical advances that lie in the future. And as well as that, there are a lot of other areas. I can't talk about them all today. And there are the unknowns. Technologies that are going to change the world as utterly as the internet has in the last 50 years, or like global nuclear uh, nuclear weapons did, but that we can't see from where we stand here in history. So what are the features of this new challenge? First of all, these risks, they'll be new. We won't have... um, They'll be new, and um, they they won't be rare. We won't have centuries to study them. We may not even have decades. We will have years, perhaps, if we're smart and we're forward-looking, and if you people in the room are doing your jobs. They won't be rare. We've come closer to wiping ourselves out in the last 50 years than we have in the 50,000 years before that. Bear that in mind. They will be varied. They will come from different sciences and different industries. They will have different features, and they will need different uh, approaches to manage them. They could be due to deliberate actions, such as war or terror, or due to uh, error, such as the accidental release of an engineered microorganism, or um, the accidental release of an artificial intelligence, or they could be the result of unintended consequences. Developments that seem safe in themselves, but have unanticipated consequences, such as we're seeing with climate change. They will be very difficult to regulate. I'll come back to this with an example. And then speed is crucial. The developments we're looking at may be faster Progress may go faster than anything we've experienced in the past. And we need to be prepared for that. It needs a new approach. And this new approach, it needs people like you in the room today. It needs futurists. It needs horizon scanners. It needs interdisciplinary researchers bringing together a lot of different ideas and a lot of different insights if we're to stand a chance of creating the future that we want. So to illustrate this, let me zoom in on one of these risky technologies, Synthetic biology is defined as the design and construction of biological organisms and systems for purposes useful to humans. In other words, building living things to be our tools and our factories. And the potential is just tremendous. From um, transforming medicine to new forms of manufacture, it's a key part of what people are calling the biotech industrial revolution. But tremendous power means that it also comes with tremendous risk. One of our advisors, George Church, who's Harvard professor of genetics, has said that his work should be under surveillance and that there needs to be a lot more regulation. Now, synthetic biology, as part of biology as technology, already has a lot of different advances in science and technology feeding into it, from molecular biology to synthetic chemistry to DNA synthesis and sequencing to uh, systems biology, to computer-aided modeling and design. If we're to understand what the future prospects in this field are, we need to understand how these that are called enabling technologies all feed in together, which means forming a bridge between experts in all these different areas. But we need a lot more than that. Synthetic biology represents one of what I think are the fascinating paradigms of the next 50 years, of this century, where the barrier between physical creation... And digital information becomes ever lower. And information becomes the crucial thing. So we're seeing a precursor of this at the moment with 3D printing and CAD files for weapons, such as guns. The technology needed to create these things gets cheaper and cheaper. Already, we've got DIY bio communities um, basically doing synthetic biology. And the know-how spreads further um, due to the internet. And information becomes a limiting factor. And information flow is very, very hard to control, as the US government is discovering at the moment. So we need to start understanding that. How do we do that? Well, this is where we start talking to people like the cybersecurity people and internet security people. This is what they do. And they don't have all the answers. But what they do have is an understanding of the problem. They know what obvious things not to try. They know what obvious solutions won't work. Most of all, they know that this is going to be a hard problem. And that can be very important. But we need more than that. As previous speakers have pointed out, we need to be working hand-in-hand with policymakers. With all these different people now using these technologies, we need to be working with scientists, industry, and the public to come up with safe and enforceable regulations and a culture of um, responsible and safe innovation, which means understanding people, how they think, how they work together. And we need to be working with the policymakers. If they're going to come up with good legislation that actually works, we need to figure out what they need. We need to provide them with the information and the help they need in a clear and unambiguous way so that it doesn't seem like they're having, as um, you pointed out, information that points in a lot of different directions that you can't draw any good conclusions for. Coming the other direction, we need to understand from the policymakers what's actually in their power to do something about. They can't wave a magic wand. They have some influence but we need to understand the limitations. Finally, we even need lessons from the hacker community, because whatever rules and safeguards we put in place, somebody's going to find a way to break them. So we need to be working with them. And in all of these areas, futurists, technologists, horizon scanners, and interdisciplinary researchers are really important. They're essential. So these are the centers that I work for in Oxford and Cambridge. And what we need to do is look to the edge of the horizon. Figure out what's impossible or implausible. And when we've done that, look at what's left. Figure out what is possible. And it's not necessarily about prediction. There may never be an engineered pandemic virus um, let loose by terrorists. But if a possibility is plausible, and if the impact is going to be big enough, then we need to put some work into understanding it and taking steps against it. We need to avoid the future we do not want. The other thing that we need to do as a community is provide the glue, provide the bridge. In order to understand any of these technologies, we need to understand all of the enabling advances that feed into them, which means bringing all the relevant experts together and talking to them And it means more than that. It means providing a bridge to all the other players that matter, the policymakers, the industrialists, the technologists, and of course, most importantly, the public, because none of these technologies develop in a vacuum. If I could leave you with one big idea, one thought, it would be this. We do need these technologies. Advances in biotechnology, artificial intelligence, molecular manufacturing, green energy production, and many others. These are the things that we need to make the world a better place for everyone. But only if we can develop them safely, responsibly, and fairly. But we we muddled as a species through the challenge of nuclear weapons. Because of luck. And because of people nobody in this room has heard of like Petrov. We can't keep relying on luck. We need a better approach and we need people like all of you today. Existential risk from technology may well be the defining feature, the defining challenge of the 21st century and the stakes couldn't be higher but with people like you and other people around the world bringing new insights, new ideas and new approaches together I think there's every reason to be optimistic. Thank you.